today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We, we heard yesterday uh, uh, Bill Morneau talk about the uh, economic statement and in all of that uh, in relation to the USMCA, the new NAFTA deal as well, NAFTA 2.0 if you want to call it that. Uh, and, and of course the tariffs that were put on the steel and aluminum industry uh, many have thought that that's this is perfect leverage to get those off. That being said, the deal will be signed with the tariffs still on. Uh, to talk about the statement and what is transpiring, we'll bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. He's with us now. Michael, thank you for your time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So your thoughts on the economic statement, it, it seems that Bill Morneau is painting a, a rosier picture than what we have, especially if you hear from the West. Yeah, but that's to be expected. Every government that's in power, no matter whether they're right-leaning or left-leaning, will always try to produce a picture, or more often than not, produce a picture that, as you say, is more rosy than what actually exists. I mean, we're not obviously suggesting that the Canadian economy is completely tanking and we're all sinking, we're all losing money, we're all in debt, etc. But things could be a lot better, and certainly Canada's um, position in the global marketplace could be a lot better if we had a government in place that actually respected the free market, how global markets work, how the economy should be actually the econo- the it should be the engine that we are building on a regular basis rather than always finding ways to plug up holes, which is unfortunately very typical to liberals. Plus as well, the liberals obviously did a, a fair bit of spending, including a, a huge slush fund, and I think that's a fair term to use, for Canadian newspapers, which is which is how it will be doled out, remains to be seen. So I'm not surprised by anything that Bill Morneau came out with. I'm not surprised that he obviously said that the economy is doing extremely well. I'm not surprised that he obviously supports his government in every way, shape, or form, and he's obviously the, the good soldier, as any finance minister of any government would be. But to paint the picture that everything is fantastic... And that we're going to basically live in deficits for a longer period of time, and that seems to be okay, is not healthy to me whatsoever. Uh, how come no word about the West and, and the oil scenario? What about the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Will this ever get built? I mean, now Rachel Notley's talking about buying more rail cars. I mean, is yeah. this not a problem that needs to be addressed? Why is he dragging his feet on this? I think they're dragging their feet on it, quite frankly, because they probably can't figure out what their next move is going to be. Um, they have really sort of backed themselves into a corner on a lot of issues, and this is definitely one of them. As for whether the Trans Mountain Pipeline will ever be built or not, I, seriously, a couple years ago, I would have thought that, if nothing else, they would have spent every waking m- minute to figure out how it could be done. Today, I'm not even sure if it's going to happen. I'm really not sure at all. And yes, you're right, Premier Rachel Notley, whether you like the NDP government in Alberta or not, is obviously frustrated, and she's trying to move ahead with her own agenda because she doesn't have faith or she doesn't trust the federal liberal government to sort of plow ahead and move ahead. And you're right, there's a lot of things involving oil and energy in general that the federal liberal government really did not address yesterday whatsoever. And these things are important and pertinent to not just the Canadian economy, but how we can move forward as an economic power in that area in the future. And I know we've talked about this for many, many years, not just necessarily you and I, but many others, that there's just so much there. I mean, including the oil sands in Alberta, which has still never been properly developed to this point. There's an enormous amount of capacity. There's an enormous amount of potential wealth that's sitting there. But because of left-wing environmental groups and because of people who are tied or attached to the hip 
of this liberal government who don't want anything to be done on certain areas or are worried about, you know, environmental rights, Native Canadian rights, etc., and just finding every sort of wall they can build in front of it or any sort of barrier, if you'd like. We're just in a position now where, and you're quite right to say it, I don't know where things are going to go for the next little while. And the sad thing is, I don't think anyone does. And it seems that the Premier is just happy with uh, and content with death by delay. Just let things simmer and uh, whatever way it goes, it goes. Yeah, and, and I don't think that's the best way to handle a government, whether it's a federal government or provincial government, or even if there's some reason it got involved, although there's no way it really could, a municipal government. Governments are supposed to be more forward-thinking in general or by nature that way. But again, that's in theory. I find it hard to believe or almost puzzling that it's just sort of sitting in limbo and it's sat in limbo for so long. And what really makes it sad is that, yes, I know there's always a risk in proposing something controversial with a federal election going to be held next year. I get that. But at the same time, it becomes easy cannon fodder for the opposition, especially Andrew Scheer and the Tories, to use to say that basically, once again, Here's another important industry and a possible wealth-generating industry that the Liberals are unwilling to touch, unwilling to talk about, and unwilling to discuss. And it's so easy for them to use in commercials and various ads next year. And it just seems bizarre that they're going to load up the rail lines with more tankers and that that's the answer. Which it isn't. Now, admittingly, if there's no, if there's no other option, at least well, it's, something. But, it's, it certainly is the short-term answer. Yeah, and unfortunately, the short-term answer sometimes is the, the type of patchwork, as most people know, that governments like to utilize as often as they can. The problem is, if you want something for it to have a long-term effect, positive, of course, that's not the way to do it. You have to go much further past tankers just to use the environment or to use the, the pipeline and, and the oil sands and various other things. As an example, that can't be the only answer when you're dealing with environmental concerns, energy projects, etc. There has to be much, much more involved in it. But again, I, I, is it a question of whether the federal liberals are just hoping that they can squeeze by in the 2019 federal election and then they'll address it? Or are they just going to sweep it further under the rug and hope that Canadians forget about it, which, quite frankly, they won't? Uh, do you think this will be an election issue? Good question. I, I guess so. Um, certainly since the Western provinces, as you correctly pointed out, were not discussed in yesterday's statement, um, I think that it actually does open the door to at least have that sort of a discussion and further emphasize, at least for, let's say, in this case, Andrew Scheer and the Tories, to ensure that the strong support they have throughout the West, and it is immense, will become even stronger, and the few seats that they lost, say, in Alberta and in B.C., they might be able to pick up at some point, depending on how they sort of craft a proper message this way. So will it become a major economic issue? No, because I think actually one of the things we're going to be talking about, the USMCA, could potentially become that. Hmm. But will it be an issue that will be discussed and talked about during the federal election? Yeah, I think so. All right, in regard to the USMCA, uh, why sign this deal before tariffs have been adjusted? I mean, Morneau said the other day that, um, you know, there's no sense stalling the whole economy on this deal just because of one sector. Uh, right. That being said, why not use it as leverage? Yeah, they, they certainly could. You're not wrong. And um, I think that in fairness to the Liberals, which I'll be nice in this case, I understand why they're pushing ahead with this and why they want to sign it next week, if possible. It is because they are looking at a lame duck Congress in the United States that when it switches over in the new year, 
is going to include a lot of left-leaning Democrats who have questioned not only the nature of the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0, whatever you'd like to call it, in the first place, they're also very ambivalent when it comes to trade. And that includes free trade with Canada and other countries. So, you know, better to deal with the devil you, you do know than the one you don't. I think that basically Bill Morneau, Prime Minister Trudeau, and the Liberal government in general realizes that they got a deal, however imperfect it was, with the United States. They can't leave it to chance that the next uh, Congress, when it turns over, when the Democrats take control of the House of Representatives, that everything's going to go hunky-dory, or I wouldn't say necessarily hunky-dory like it did the last time, but at least it's, the job was finished to some degree at the end of this year. You bring I, up an interesting... Risk into next year. You bring up an interesting point, Michael, that, that uh, obviously it's better with for Canada with the current House in place, not with the Democrat majority, as will happen after January. Right. And that's the big key. And, the, and as I said, it's the better to deal with the, you know, it's better to go to the dance with someone you do know. Yeah. And in this case, the devil is the Congress as it currently exists. I would much rather have that in place because the risk that we take to not have the USMCA signed before the switch in Congress, it, it, would, be, it would be disastrous potentially for the Canadian economy. And we know what's happening. And yes, I know that the tariffs and other things are obviously very frustrating, but a lot of people are hoping behind the scenes that once the USMCA is in place, it's signed, enacted, etc., between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, that these tariffs will be lifted gradually as time goes along. And there has been, well, there have been a few minor allusions to this by the Trump White House that probably everything will just disappear. And while naturally you can't trust anyone's word, and the U.S. President Donald Trump, whether you love him or hate him, has not always been trustworthy when it comes to deal-making and, shall we say, deal-breaking. Um, I, I think here, once this, uh, once this agreement is in place, and once Donald Trump has an agreement that he feels comfortable with, or at least an agreement he feels comfortable with in a world of free trade that he doesn't necessarily trust, that the tariffs will come off gradually. And I think that's what Morneau Trudeau and the Liberals are banking on. What will it take for Donald Trump to to feel that way? I mean, what 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 sort of uh, insurance does he need in order? What, what's in it for him to drop them, or is he starting to get blowback within his own country? I think he is starting to get blowback to some degree. Um, I think he also knows that his position is not quite as powerful as it once was before, and that when Congress switches over in January. He's going to have a lot. He's going to be fighting and arguing a lot more with them then, and that's after he's been fighting and arguing with them when he controlled both houses, when he controlled the judiciary, yeah. when he had control of all the governors. He had everything in the palm of his hand, and life was incredibly difficult, as you know, for over two years. Imagine how much worse it's going to be in a few weeks' time. So the risk is, I think, is that a lot of people probably around him, this is just a guess, and senior advisors primarily are saying to him, look, you know, whatever you do or do not think of free trade, whatever you do or do not think of the USMCA that we have signed, we need to get it through now because we can't take the risk that it's going to fall apart, everything's going to crumble, and sure, the United States will obviously survive, Canada will survive it too, but it could become very, very messy to start the process rolling again, Trump will not get all the things in place that he necessarily wants because you know that the Democrats, the left, or especially the left-leaning ones in Congress, are going to fight him as hard as they possibly can. 
And probably the U.S. president is being told behind the scenes, even if it's imperfect, sign it and let's ensure that it's there long before the Christmas holidays so that everything is in place. And no matter what the Democrats do in 2019, they can't stop that. What about the signing ceremony? I thought there was rumors floating around that the PM wouldn't go. Yeah, I was wondering if you're going to bring that up. Um, Well, Mr. Selfie, or Prime Minister Selfie, as we like it, as you probably discussed on your radio show, has sort of alluded to the fact that he's not going to go there unless things are properly in order, the tariffs are gone, and life is, is, you know, as golden as it was before. Now, is this a, a bargaining ploy? Yeah, I think so. I think that obviously Trudeau is trying to sort of get as much as he possibly can out of it. And certainly he doesn't have to go. It's not necessary. For example, Bill Morneau can be sent in his place to sign it. It's still legitimate. If the document's signed, the document's signed. It's easy as that. And if they really require, obviously, a leader's signature, which they do in a lot of these honor, a lot of these ceremonies, they can just send it to him. It's not that hard to get it. One way or the other, Trudeau will be involved in the process somehow. Um, I, I think this is basically Trudeau's final thumb or snub at Donald Trump based on things that have happened over the past year and a half or so, and the fact that the relationship between Canada and the U.S. is not as great as it should be. I mean, I'm not saying it's necessarily as bad as we saw during the years of Jean Chrétien, at least near the end of his run, where America bashing was certainly part of the Liberal caucus at that point. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people realize, and certainly Justin Trudeau realizes, that he's not getting the deal that he wants out of the USMCA or NAFTA 2.0, he settled for something that was okay, made sense, but was hardly perfect. Ergo, he doesn't necessarily want to appear, especially the U.S. president, who has been bashing him pretty heavily in public for, what, about six to eight months now? He's probably had enough. So I understand it from that standpoint. I think if anyone was in his shoes, they would feel the same way. But it would be better if all the leaders, the leaders from the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, were there at that ceremony, signed the document, took their photos, which I know that Justin Trudeau loves, whether he admits to it or not, and go on from there. But, uh, but should Can- do Canadians understand why Trudeau doesn't want to be there? Yes. Will they sympathize with him? I think because if you look at polls right now and how little sympathy Donald Trump has yeah. in this country, mm. the answer is probably that Justin Trudeau is, at least has a majority opinion when it comes to that. Will uh, Donald lift the tariffs just to get the pick? No. I, don't <laughs> I really don't think so. Hey, that would be neat, wouldn't it? You know, so so it's, it's very simple, Justin. You come here, we'll drop all those tariffs and steal an aluminum. What do you think? I don't think it can quite oh, work like that. Although, you know what? If the, if the man really truly believes in the art of the deal, and that was the title of his famous book, it would be neat if he did it. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. Michael, as always, thank you, and have a great weekend. You too. Take good care. Enjoy the Grey Cup. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The principal and president of St. Michael's College School has resigned, have resigned in the wake of allegations of sexual assault by the students, uh, despite being strongly supported by the school right up until now. Here's what Global's Karen Lieberman had to say. President and the principal have resigned effective immediately. That's Principal Greg Reeves and Father Jefferson Thompson. Now, they, in the statement, it notes their uh, their focus to put on the uh, horrific events of student misbehavior, their, their shared desire to 
to move the school forward without distractions and allowing it to focus on on healing, on change. And of course, this comes after allegations of sexual assault and assault had recently surfaced at the school. This is part of the statement that we have here, having fulfilled their moral and ethical obligations to manage the immediate crisis and engage our school community. This courageous decision allows us to move forward with our goals, understanding how these events could have occurred, regaining the trust of our community and bringing cultural change to our school. Now that is from the chair of the board of directors for St. Michael's College. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman, PR principal there and with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott, for having me on. So what does it say when only 24 hours earlier the school was standing behind these two and there was no way anybody was stepping down, and now this? Well, this is uh, Best Practices 101 in terms of crisis communication, Scott. The fact that 24 hours earlier the board said that um, we have full confidence in, in our executives, and then 24 hours later they resigned. This is a face saving measure for the principal and um, I guess he was the president of the school, the father was the president, mm-hmm. uh, for, for these two men. So, you know, to fire them outright would have meant culpability. It would have meant they did the wrong thing. And it, they've also would have led, it also would have led to lawsuits galore. So instead, they say that we believe them that we trusted them, that we felt they did the best job possible given the circumstances. Now we're going to throw them under the bus. Right. No, but not throwing them under the bus, under the bus, Scott. I think it was always implied that heads would roll. And the last time that we talked, I said it had to happen, but it had to be a matter of who and when. So but, but, but at the end of the day, why, when this all happened, rather than even getting to this point, why, when this all happened, did the school just not say, you know what, we have full confidence in these people, but we're just asking everybody to take a step, uh, a pause, a step back, a, a leave of, of absence while we figure it all out? Then they wouldn't have even got here. You know, I think that when you do that, you still leave yourself open. You leave yourself open to criticism. Um, I think that when you're looking down the road, do you think that uh, future parents would still have confidence in the school in order to enroll their kids? But the report is out. The, the report is out. Why not? I mean, and these are all alleged incidents at this point, but, but well, the, you God, know, the, 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 yeah. the word is out. So, I mean, is the damage already not done? Why not make it look like you're at least trying to mop it up and clean things up properly? Yes, but this is what they have done to do that. So by sort of absolving these men of any, you know, further indignity. They first say they had full confidence in them, knowing full well what was going to happen 24 hours later. So it's really a mitigating practice, Scott. It's just, it's basically to say, we believe that they did the right thing in case somebody wants to come back and sue them as, as, as it well could happen. So this is sort of to stem any further legal action. And then knowing full well that the future of the school would be dependent on whether they were there or not, then it would be better to have them not there because it's just too much of a hurdle to explain to parents, well, we know that the principal let this happen, 
but he's still around. It, it, it could not be. It could not be. And that's why they let them go. Why the difference between, or what is the difference between them resigning? Because theoretically, that's what they say, that they resigned on Thursday, as opposed to being asked to step down or step away. It, it's a matter of culpability. It's a matter of admitting wrongdoing. And you remember the press conference that the principal held a couple days ago? Yep. And even then, you and I discussed, I mean, uh, you know, the, the actions of what happened within that 48 hours are still unclear to most of us. You know, I was even talking with some friends this morning, and we're all still talking about it. And everybody sort of looked at each other but, and said, you know, what really happened in those 48 hours? Why did he wait? And that's really the crux of the situation. And we still, and neither has the media, quite honestly, gotten a very clear and concise response to that. So by sort of absolving, absolving their leadership, they mitigate the culpability and perhaps for future lawsuits. And this is their best opportunity, really, to try and save the reputation of the school. At the end of the day, getting back to those two days that are in question, uh, how can you do anything but assume the reason they were doing this was for uh, to alleviate damage to the school? Because at the end of the day, a crime was committed, a crime they are obligated to report. So how can you use the excuse that you're doing it for the victim that's, so uh, you've been hurt, but we're going to think about it for a bit uh, because this is a criminal activity. We're not going to call the cops right now. I mean, how do you use looking after the victim as an excuse for that decision? Well, you know, this is the big question, Scott. And people are really questioning this whole thought process of waiting 48 hours before calling the police. So, and what's interesting is that if you talk to some of the parents, and the parents have been quite vocal about all of this, if you talk to some of the parents, they're, they're, they're angry at the media, and they're angry at the way that the story has portrayed. I've got, I've got a couple of emails from people that are saying, how dare we chastise uh, this school this way? And I, how come they are refusing to admit there's a problem, or as this you know, drags out, it's impossible not to come to that conclusion? You know, if the school had come clean in the first place, instead of dodging the question of what happened in those 48 hours, then th this would have taken a slightly different turn. Not a big turn, but it would have taken a slightly different turn. And, you know, when a crisis happens, you have to remember one thing. You most often do it to yourself. Yes, there are mitigating circumstances where things happen to you and you have to deal with it. But when it comes to an organization, whether it's a Fortune 500 company or, in this case, even a school, sometimes by trying to skirt the issues and dealing with incidences in the way you have for the potentially the past who knows how long, over many, many decades, then you're sort of the victim of your own, of your own mandate and your own philosophies. And then you have to live with that. And you have to realize that the way you have you know, taking matters into your own hands is not going to play any longer in 2018 when people have different means of communication to tell the story without you putting a veil over it. And, and again, surprisingly similar to the way the Catholic Church handles these situations. You know, you brought this up, um, and you said this might not be politically correct when we last talked. I yeah. think it was on Tuesday. But I have to tell you, 
this is not dissimilar to any other conversation that I have been having with the media on that very matter. Yeah, I noticed it coming up in the next 24 hours. People started asking the same questions. And it's sort of uh, an institutionalized way of thinking. And the Catholic Church has absolutely put its head in the sand over, you know, priests who have been accused of sexually abusing young boys for decades, for decades. And it seems to be that when they know that something like this happens, the first thing to do is what happens here stays here and let's just keep it quiet. Circle the wagons. Circle the wagons is a great way of putting it. So what about these two? Did they go willingly? How would that discussion have gone down? I think they always knew that they would have to resign. They knew that heads would roll. And whosoever watch it is, in this case the principal especially, he would have to go. You know, there's nothing that right now that he can say or do that would provide, you know, future confidence. And I think that we have to emphasize that. We're talking about the future of the school because every meeting, Scott, that they have had in camera with parents or with their board members has to be the future of this institution is now in serious doubt. And it turned on a dime. It turned faster then they could get them th- get, get their um, circle the wagons, quite honestly. So that's why everything that's happening now is to protect the future of the school. And it seems that some alumni were in as much denial, and it wasn't until many have spoken up that they've talked to each other that they realize this problem's a lot deeper than what it was, or what they because, thought it was. Yes, and that is a great point, because everybody has stuck their head and looked the other way. When we last talked also, um, we had uh, somebody who tweeted or sent you an email that said, listen, hazing has been around for ages. We used to do this to all the great Niners. It's yeah. just a way of life. Well, guess what, Adol? It's not a way of life. Not anymore, And it's yeah. not the way that schools should, should run. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, when I was watching the news um, the other day on Global, and I saw they, they filmed the kid who left after two years because he was bullied. Right. And this was a big, strapping guy. He was a, He obviously played sports. He either played football mm. or he played uh, hockey. This was not a shrinking violet type of kid. Yeah. Yet, yet, it, the atmosphere was so bad, even though we tried to think that today, every day is another day, it didn't change. And the school has never, ever put in processes or uh, protected their students who were hazed because they all felt it was just part of the culture. Uh, are these two guys scapegoats? Uh, did this all happen under their watch? Uh, did this ever exist before their time? Did this happen? On, no, they're not scapegoats. Absolutely not. I can't believe that this uh, that this reporter, I mean, that this principal didn't know of these things that had happened. And uh, from now on and moving forward, what does this do for the school? How long is it going to take to clear this mess? Years. Years. This is going to take years. This is not a quick fix. And I think that, you know, we'll never know in the media because they're not obliged to report it. But, you know, we'll know the first inkling will be how big the 2019-2020 classes, and that will be it. And you can, you know, there's a lot of private schools that have had, you know, problems having a retention rate, 
and getting parents to pay that kind of money. And, you know, regardless, people think that, you know, you send your kids to St. Mike's, that it's one of the best places that they can be. However, with something like this, not every kid is strong. Not every kid can stand up to bullying. So why would you even put your kid in that situation if you don't believe things have been taken care of? And what the school has to do now, Scott, is to prove beyond a 1-800 snitch line, which maybe people call or maybe they won't, but that's just really a stopgap approach. They need a full and comprehensive approach on how they're dealing with bullying how they're dealing when it happens, and what are the ramifications to these kids. Hmm. Because there's no more sweeping this under the rug. What about the role of the alumni and they played in all of this? Like you, like we mentioned earlier, uh, the schools seemed, seemed to stand behind these two, uh, and then it seemed that the alumni mobilized. They were looking for psychologists within the group to help out students, and, and there was a huge meeting and such. Um, you know, we talked about how some were in denial. That being said, some actually seemed to really push forward on this. How much pressure do you think they put on uh, staff for this to happen? You know what? I, I, I really question the motives of the alumni because I think a lot of circling the wagons happens directly because of that. It really is about protecting the club, isn't it? It really is about protecting the club, and the club is busted wide open. And no longer can you say for the next decade with pride that I went to St. Mike's. Yeah. Every time you now, let's say there are kids that are in university who are graduating and looking for jobs, Every time you now say they look at a resume and it says high school, St. Michael's College, you're going to get questioned about that yeah. or they will wonder about perhaps maybe you have questionable intentions. It is a blight and it is, you know, really a black mark that will haunt the school and its students and its graduates for at least a decade. What about the advantage of gender schools like this, all boys, all girls? Does it help? Oh, gosh, that's a whole other ball of wax. And do I think it helps? I don't know. Some people send their kids to single-gender schools because they feel it's less of a distraction. Don't even get me started on that. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, I I, I don't think it's about single-gender schools, Scott. I really think it's about um, private schools in general. Or even just, you know, this is this is absolutely going to have ramifications beyond the private school system. That, that, that's, a, that's another valid point. How do other institutions look at this? Everybody, everybody better be having meetings. Every school, every, uh, you know, uh, board. Of, of but the parents. public schools are way ahead on this, are they not? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I would, I would like, like any public school system... I think that it is not standard across the board on how every school operates. I'll be honest with you. I really don't. And I think that it varies from one school to the next. And I think that standardization on how to deal with these extreme events of bullying is every school takes a different approach. So therefore, every parent board Every school executive, every school board is now meeting and saying, okay, what's in place, what's not in place, 
what have we tolerated and what can we no longer tolerate? So I think it's going to have sweeping ramifications on how these type of issues are tolerated in the future and dealt with, not tolerated, dealt with in the future. Uh, that initial story and that was that horrible uh, alleged sex assault. If it hadn't started with that sex assault and, and the spreading of that on social media, would we be talking about this today? No, but you know what, Scott? There's always a, like sometimes they call it uh, patient zero or person zero where something, you know, is blown wide open that may have been going on before but was never, ever taken to an account. So you might want to call this sort of case zero, where from here, everything else is different. Will, where does this leave uh, past grads, alumni? How, how do they move forward with this? Um, whether you're 20 years into your career or you're just leaving university and trying to get that first job. You know what? And this is where, um, whoever they're using for crisis communications, this is where the work really comes in now. They've mitigated the crisis up to this point. They're, they've taken all the appropriate steps that should have happened. I would say that some of them have been a bit bumpy along the road, but now that there's been the stepping down of uh, the principal, that things can move forward. And what they need to do now is develop a bit of a playbook, and they need to develop ongoing messaging. So when uh, they'll be messaging for the executive, they'll be messaging for the alumni, and it has to be concrete to show that there are go-forward messages. I'm still proud of the school. We have had, th th this is awful and this should have never happened, but now we're taking steps to ensure that it will no longer ever happen again. So messaging will have to be given to all these people. It'll have to be reflected in their, um, in their uh, materials where they're recruiting parents and, and students. It'll be reflected on their website. You are going to see a different narrative coming out from St. Michael's College in the future. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa Freeman, PR, a principal there. We are talking about St. Michael's College School. Alyssa, thanks for the time and insight as always. Have a great weekend. Thank you, Scott. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Rachel Notley, the Premier of Alberta, frustrated with the Canadian government uh, that they can't get the pipeline built or won't get it built or whatever. And is considering buying her own train. She's going <laughs> to start her own railroad. Uh, railroad. No, she's considering buying rail cars to ship oil instead of pipeline, which is really safe. Let's bring in uh, Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. He's with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. <laughs> yes, good to be here on a Black Bef Friday when the world seems to be going to pot. It's like, it's like Monopoly. We're buying the railroads all up now. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. First, are you surprised that Minister Marneau didn't do more to address the energy, energy sector in the economic statement that he had the other day? No, it's all it's all virtue signaling. They they don't really have an interest in building that pipeline, and uh, you know the fact is the uh, they're staring down what is a nineteen billion dollar deficit, uh, which they have uh, paid us into, considering they inherited uh, virtual uh, balance books when they uh, when they took over. Uh, it's just they have no interest. They don't care. They're going to spend the country into oblivion, and worse, uh, they are staring down the most precious asset we have as a country. 
and uh, working along side and side, arm in arm with uh, those who believe we shouldn't be selling any more oil in this country. So, same old story. And uh, how does he have a choice here? Right. How does he have a choice here, Dan? In, in the sense that, as you mentioned, he needs the money, and he did say that he would get resources to Tidewater. So, yeah, you know what? Uh, then don't kill the Gateway Pipeline. Don't kill the energy, yeah. spike the Energy East Pipeline. The fact is, you've you've eliminated two options, and now you've put all your marbles, the four point five billion bucks, in an existing pipeline. We haven't got one foot of pipeline built into British Columbia. Um, you know, this is uh, going from the ridiculous to the absurd. And I, I think the point is that maybe what I would have done, were I prime minister, was simply start to build it, refer to the Supreme Court, start building it, and uh, the courts be damned. And I say that because he has something he can rely on: executive order, peace order, and good government. These are all imminent areas. If someone has a problem with the way in which you've consulted uh, and changes their mind, this particular judge did in the case of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. She created two different uh, atmospheres uh, for uh, consultation, one in Northern Gateway. She didn't like that. They, they bent over backwards, appe- appeased her decision, and she changed the, the methodologies, uh, the modalities of uh, consultation. As for the uh, you know sounds from the... Uh, uh, ships coming through the Salish Sea to affect the South Resident Orcas. Excuse me, there's 3,000 boats that pass by there every year with the same kind of noise. You know, this is this is getting a little ridiculous, and more importantly, it's hurting your economy in ways that you can't possibly imagine. But I think Canadians are going to smarten up very soon. Uh, so has the Prime Minister just written off the West? I mean, yep. doesn't he need them? I mean, yep. he didn't even meet with Notley when he was there last. Why is that? Well, I mean, she's probably uh, damaged goods, too. She's gone in April, and she, Prime Minister Trudeau will be facing uh, Jason Kenney. It'll be a very different matter, by the way. You're not going to be dealing with somebody who's going to be nice and uh, sit down uh, with pleasantries and try to do all sorts of things. Uh, he's going to be very specific, uh, and he is going to uh, go after Trudeau, which I think is long overdue that we have a premier that stands up to this guy because, frankly, the charade uh, is, uh, is, is, should come to an end. Uh, this is, you either fish or cut bait at this point. You either build the pipeline or you don't. Uh, if you want to sit around and fool around and waste public's money and their time, ruin the province. Uh, you know, Scott, I've been receiving emails uh, that have really are frankly troubling uh, of, of people who are now coming back and, and making comments that I haven't seen since 1980 when the National Energy Program virtually cut this nation in half. And uh, I, I would not for a moment hesitate to say that there is there are real strains in the Federation. This is no longer an economic issue. They're desperate out there, and they know that they've been hoodwinked. They know they've been uh, given the, uh, the, the heave-ho by the rest of the country, and it's likely that they could start to, uh, to thump that drum. And I hope they don't, but uh, I, I can't see this uh, calming down anytime, anytime soon, especially when they're getting 10 bucks for a barrel of oil. I mean... Not even Venezuela uh, has that problem. Not even Libya has that problem. So how can the Prime Minister not look at what's been in the news this week and not react? He knows he doesn't. Look, for him, win the seats in Quebec. Hope that Jagmeet Singh uh, comes third in the Burnaby uh, uh, by-election. His whole point here is to uh, feed off the NDP green votes. That's all that matters. Because there's 40% of people out there who will vote that way at any given time. It's the other 60% that are going to make up their minds. And uh, if the opposition uh, on the left isn't strong, Trudeau gets that. So he doesn't care if he loses Alberta. Uh, he doesn't care if he loses the West. Mm-hmm. He certainly doesn't care uh, if he loses most of BC. As long as he can hold Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto, uh, the, the, and, and of course the Maritimes, which will always support the Liberals, 
uh, I know that. I was a Liberal for, what, 18 years in the House of Commons. Um, he could hold government. He could continue his majority. And by the way, that uh, that will probably pretty much put uh, an end and a uh, proverbial nail in the coffin of any Canadian oil, because he will then introduce the Clean Energy Act, which will allow him to uh, shut down most refineries in Canada, or at least force them to uh, go after a spec in terms of clean fuel that no refinery in the world is going to be subject to. So, you know, I don't think he cares. We should all be driving electric vehicles. What can Jason Kenney do that Rachel Notley can't or couldn't? Oh, I think he would uh, probably move very swiftly on the legislation to block oil to Vancouver. Uh, and that's just that simple. He'll send it by crude, and uh, he will change the allotments. And, uh, uh, you know, here's what you have. You either take our heavy oil or you don't. Uh, if you don't take the heavy oil, then you don't get the gasoline. And uh, you can you can deal with $2 a litre for gasoline or more. Look, uh, uh, one pipeline disruption on the natural gas side uh, that occurred just a couple of days after uh, Thanksgiving. Um, the Enbridge uh, natural gas pipeline was enough to cause prices to spike about uh, 15 cents a litre. Back on October 13th, the effect was $1.63.9 for Vancouver and the Lower Mainland. So it wouldn't take much uh, disruption on the gasoline side. If you remove one-third of the available gasoline, uh, disrupted or push it back for several days, made available to Vancouver, then I think that's an option that he would uh, certainly not hesitate to use. He would also, I think, be a little bit more uh, uh, direct. He would scrap the carbon tax. Uh, he would uh, ca- remove the caps on emissions. He would do pretty much everything that uh, Notley has tried to do in order to appease and placate the green uh, uh, strategists and the green elements within this country that seem to hold the country at bay. So it's pretty clear to me that uh, his first priority would be Alberta, and uh, he would do so in the context of the Federation, which I think is a very noble move because the alternative is uh, is not very pleasant. Um, what about Rachel Notley's performance in all of this? Her political hands tied because of B, uh, NDP governments in both Alberta and BC. <laughs> how, how does she balance this? How does she walk this fine line? Well, I think it's what she did when she went in. She was opposed to pipelines. She opposed uh, Kinder Morgan, uh, rather uh, TMX, uh, not TMX, uh, KXL. Uh, she opposed the uh, Northern Gateway. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty clear she tried to ride two horses, uh, which are quite divergent, and in the process uh, has has become irrelevant. I, Although I, Justin I, Trudeau can do it quite well. Well, he can because he's got Eastern Canada. I mean, he's he can run the country uh, by continuing to uh, say one thing to Eastern Canada, at least uh, to Quebec and the Maritimes, that uh, carbon taxes are a good thing, uh, and the economy seems to be holding up uh, in Eastern Canada, while Western Canada is uh, is uh, certainly the prairies. Alberta and Saskatchewan are suffering. All right, let's talk about this. Uh, obviously, the the uh, latest suggestion from Notley is uh, you're not going to give us pipelines. We're going to start shipping it via rail. Why is this? Why is this new? Haven't they been doing this in the past? What's different what? now? I mean, that's the only alternative, isn't it? Well, it is the only only alternative, and there the protesters can't stop it, but it will become far more dangerous. Uh, I had mentioned uh, over a month and a half ago that uh, by 2022, we would see a quadrupling of the amount of oil uh, shipped, so about 600,000, possibly as much as 600,000 barrels a day. We're we're already up to 270,000 barrels a day by rail. That will easily double over the next couple of years, so... Why is she not been doing this already? Why not be ramping up the rail? Uh... Well, I think the oil companies are doing it anyway. So, uh, Philadelphia Energy Solutions, one of the bigger refineries in the eastern part of the U.S. and uh, Pennsylvania, already inked a deal uh, worth 70,000 barrels a day. They're going to take in Alberta oil 
ship it all the way to Pennsylvania and uh, use it to, and process it there. You can do a lot more with heavy oil than you can with light oil. You can make diesel for one thing and uh, and heating oil. So, you know, there's a lot of, forget the discount. The discount is huge, a huge incentive, and it's not going to change much anytime soon. So, you know, the industry itself is doing this already. We don't, you know, what Notley's saying. That's my point. Like, you know, if there's stuff to be shipped, I'm sure if you call a company, they'll come and pick it up and ship it for you. So what's she talking talking about buying cars and all this sort of stuff? Sorry? Alberta is so desperate, they're using trucks to carry oil across the border. So you have about 3,000 trucks filled with oil every day, carrying the equivalent of, uh, I'm trying to remember the number of barrels, you can stick in there. Uh, it looks like about uh, is it fifty times one. It's forty thousand divided by one fifty nine. So you're you're talking about uh, uh, you know uh, two hundred barrels of oil a day uh, going down per truck. That's uh, that's what we're feeling. That's what you're faced with, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. But when you have people in Ottawa making decisions and courts making decisions, they don't look at the bigger picture. They look at the very fine point of law. Uh, and and uh, when they walk in with their own per- personal bias in terms of what's been consulted, what's not been consulted, you can really mess up a country. Um, so there has to be some kind of leveling of the powers, uh, the power to obstruct those who use the courts and the courts that seem to be compliant. And I'm not speaking disrespectfully of the courts. I just think that it's high time that they be you know that they be reined in. And I think in there are a number of analogies where I think the federal government has absolute authority. If it doesn't have the authority to approve pipelines and allow pipelines to be built, then we are in real trouble because there is no authority then to, to create any type of investment uh, potential for Canada. And that's why investors are fleeing Canada. And if people don't think that's important, then you know what? Let's just wait a year from now. When they're belly aching and, and, and upset, uh, they'll have no one to blame but their own their, their themselves. This is really fundamental ignorance. And I don't know who's pushing this, but the reality is that this is going to hurt all of all Canada, not just a handful uh, out in Western Canada. Uh, so, does the Alberta government need to buy rail cars? I mean, is that a solution to this, albeit temporary? Oh, you know, it sounds a little bit like the federal government uh, thirty years ago buying hopper rail hopper cars to get rail moving to get grain moving. Like, do we? Is there a shortage of rail cars? Yeah, there is because they, the rail cars that we have may not stand up because of lack of on sick. They've changed. Right. Some carriers uh, in the United States that I'm familiar with have uh, indicated very clearly that the Canadian car is not acceptable for uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for for transportation cross border. Right. Uh, as a chassis system, PNX, I'm trying to P- PBX uh, said no. So there is uh, there's a real concern there that uh, you know uh, as much as a third to half of our of, of our uh, cars, our, our stock rolling stock, is unfit to be used. So that's going to create an even greater crisis. Wow! And I think uh, it's, you know, no one thought this out because in Ottawa, it's all about virtue signaling. It's not about looking ahead and planning. It's a complete, utter lack of leadership that's going to lead to higher prices and disruption for Canadians, the likes of which we haven't seen. We've only, we're really on the beginning of this problem. And so if you think 19 billion bucks is a deficit is a big deal, you ain't seen nothing yet. Um, is there any sort of immediate action that can be taken? I mean, this is a long-term issue, is it not? Well, I think the damage has been done so thoroughly that it's managed to, I think, uh, square very well with uh, Prime Minister's own right-hand man, Gerald Butts, who's a former member of uh, the uh, World Wildlife Federation, whose part and parcel of their mandate was to lock Canadian oil in the ground. Uh, so, you know, I don't think they could have imagined things would have worked out so quickly you know, to their favour. 
But now you have to deal with governing the entire country. And when your finances are lacking and when you have uh, a really serious, it's, I, I, I see Eastern media finally paying attention to this. Why? Because south of the border, I can tell you, American media has certainly recognized this and is saying, what is going on? What's going wrong with Canada? I mean, what's what, their reaction to this? Well, because they're, they're loving it because they're, they're getting oil cheap. They're shocked that the country can't get its act together because they can get a pipeline approved uh, and built within 18 months, as you can see with the shale oil in the uh, Permian Basin. Those will come online and they'll challenge OPEC. But they're going to go to 12 to 13 million barrels production per day while Canada sits idle at about uh, 3 million potentially, uh, the maximum that we can get across the border savings except what we can get by truck or by rail. So they're uh, yes, they're taking advantage of it. It's a it's a hundred million dollar a day gift that Canada gives to the U.S. And uh, so you know, <laughs> it's uh, it's great for Americans. It's just terrible for Canada. And I don't know, Scott. I you know, in the 1990s, I know that one of the most critical elements that helped this country get out of the serious financial situation it found itself in wasn't just the federal government cutting back on programs and growing the economy and having a great international economy, it was at the same time uh, we saw a massive increase in the value of uh, Canadian oil and the ability to export it to the United States and get within 10 to $15 of what they were getting for benchmark oil. Now, the reverse is true. Why would the same government, why would a liberal government do the same thing now? And you're a liberal. I mean, why are you? It's not um, not a liberal government. Why? It's it's, it's an NDP green government. I mean, Paul Martin, Jean Chrétien, they all, you know, they all seem to have fiscal responsibility in mind. What's happened here? Yeah, there is no responsibility here. And it's not, as I said, it's not the same group. Uh, There's a lot of us that are sitting on the sideline saying it's, you know, it's not for us to question how these guys choose to govern. But if you want to compare it to any previous government I've seen, the only one I can give an analogy to is the Pierre Elliott Trudeau government of 1980, 1981, 82. We're strong on the Constitution, but uh, extraordinarily uh, weak on the economy. And I think we're heading down that road. Is this, do you think this is an election issue, Dan? Is this resonating with Canadians or do they just feel good being, you know, the environmental conscience of the world? (laughs) It'll resonate on January 1st and they wake up. And just like an elastic band on the backside, they get a 5.3 cent increase here in the province of Ontario. So that'll separate those who think it's funny and cute and everything and those who can't afford it. So elaborate on that. January 1, another 5 cent increase. 5.3. Yeah, 5.3 and it'll go up 2.5 every year. Now that's assuming... And what's the reasoning for that? Oh, that's the carbon tax levy to get us to $50 a ton because you have to be responsible in your use of fuel. You should not be... Not paying this, and of course uh, they're saying emitters will pass on the, you know, will will also pay. They won't. They'll pass on the price to you and I. So yeah, it's going to become a lot more expensive. And uh, may I point out, six point seven cents for diesel, which means uh, anybody who thinks that uh, they can get away with it, they don't drive a car, and they want to, you know, do the right thing, will also have to pay for it. Whether it's public transportation to get their kids to school, whether it's the public buses they take, or whether whether it is the cost of transporting groceries to their store. Get ready for a big increase in the cost of living at a time when our Canadian dollar continues to suffer and we lose our purchasing power by about 30 to 35 percent. That's already happened. So uh, get ready. Uh, The cost of living and the ability to make ends meet is just going to become that much more arduous on Canadians. And for people paying bills in this country, I think it's going to be a very interesting election because I don't think they'll be supporting the current government. Uh, Justin Trudeau has said pollution isn't free anymore. It, it sounds great, but how do you balance that with responsible government and, and, and creating revenue for programs? 
Maybe Mr. Trudeau missed the uh, science classes. CO2 is not pollution. That's part of the giver of life. If you don't have it, you not enough CO2 in the air uh, creates uh, an unusual circumstance. Uh, you wind up, uh, you know, uh, ruining photosynthesis and uh, plants die. So uh, I'm not sure what he's referring to. If he wants to talk about pollution, I'd be more interested in asking why his government did nothing when uh, uh, the Ville de Longueuil, again in Montreal, dumped a couple billion uh, liters of sewage into the fresh water of the St. Lawrence. That, to me, is pollution. Uh, uh, that's that because the sky is more romantic than the water. Uh, <laughs> one story is more. One one story has more legs than the other, Dan. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, we can't talk about the one, but we can certainly talk about the other. Look, I I'm not going to go in the business of uh, debating carbon and uh, CO2 and climate change. Uh, I think uh, I'm just relieved today that we're at seven degrees here in Hamilton versus uh, minus twelve the night before last uh, in the middle of November. But uh, that aside, I think we have to be practical. Even as a country, the things that we're doing will not have an effect whatsoever on, uh, on, on climate change, especially coming from a country that already made the changes, got away from coal-burning uh, coal plants, got away from uh, and put, imposed serious cap emissions on production, uh, a country that is uh, learning from, you know, uh, from efficiency. We've had nuclear facilities here since the 1960s. We've done our due diligence a long time ago. So, you know, if you, we want to whip ourselves, that's fine. But let's understand there becomes a point where you can't afford this kind of stuff. And uh, I'm deeply worried about the ability for people to make ends meet and this nonsense that, hey, uh, pay, uh, you know, pay $5 in carbon taxes and we'll give you back 7 That's just creative financing and, and, and uh, hocus-pocus uh, uh, politics and economics. And I, I'm, 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 I'm a god that people are actually falling for this nonsense. Dan McTagg says, we've already done our part and continue to do it. Uh, this is beating a dead horse. Former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, AnalystGasBuddy.com. Dan McTagg fighting the battle for us all. Thank you, Dan, as always. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, Scott. Cheers. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.